Ben here from BadQuaker.com. Today is Friday, March 8th, 2013, and you're going to hear uh, today a uh, another of the uh, reruns, another classic. This one's going to be from September of 2012, and it's about uh, Murray Rothbard's Four Affirmations. Now, the reason I'm playing it is because I actually uh, am incorrect on some things in this podcast, and so I want to play the podcast and let you hear me being incorrect. And my incorrect, uh, the, the portions that I'm incorrect is in references to Lou Rockwell and what I believed was him turning in the right direction and abandoning the silliness of the Ron Paul campaign. I was wrong on that, and I'll clarify that in a future uh, podcast. But uh, in order to lay the groundwork for that future podcast, it's important to hear me in this one. Now, I'm right on the things that I'm talking about with Rothbard and the four affirmations. I'm just wrong on my assumption that Lou Rockwell has... Uh, has turned around and abandoned the silliness of the Ron Paul, you know, uh, campaigning and all that kind of nonsense. Okay, so here it is, the four affirmations. And welcome back again to BadQuaker.com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. Today is Friday, September 21st, 2012, and this is podcast number 209. So I was over at uh, Lou Rockwell's this morning, uh, LouRockwell.com, and uh, and Lou had put up a, a article, and I'll put a link to it in today's show notes at BadQuaker.com. And I was reading this article, and I was thinking, man, everybody, uh, every Ron Paul supporter should read this. Uh, this is, you know, um, I kind of had some concerns about Lou Rockwell back during the height of the Ron Paul hype. And I, and I thought, man, it, it seems like Lou is taken by this. It seems, you know, some of the things Lou was saying, it was like, man, Lou, you can't really think that Ron Paul's actually going to be elected and actually use the government to fix the government. And he, and he really had me worried. But, um, but since the whole, you know, Ron Paul campaign thing has fallen apart and, uh, and the inner workings have all been exposed and... And so forth. Lou has really put out some good stuff, and he's put it out directly pointed towards the Ron Paul supporters. And I and I and I see a bigger strategy, and I I hope that I'm what I'm seeing is accurate. I don't know, you know, I can't like sit down and talk to Lou Rockwell and find this out for certain. So I'm I'm gauging this at a distance, but I have to assume that that Lou Lou to a certain extent pand uh, well that that's not really the right word. He um. He stayed friendly. Let's put it that way. He stayed very friendly with the Ron Paul crowds, and and utilizing his close personal friendship with Ron Paul, he stayed within the circle, and he stayed at least as a name that a lot of Ron Paul supporters could recognize and understand that he was in the in you know he was in a, a good close relationship with Ron Paul. Uh, 
and he never really came out with radical anarchist stuff during the height of the Ron Paul hype. And now, hopefully, uh, and I hope this is happening, and I hope this is Lou Rockwell's uh, strategy, he is utilizing that trust that a lot of Ron Paul uh, people developed in Lou Rockwell, and he's, I think, attempting to lead them into a higher level of understanding, a, a level that I think Ron Paul already grasps, but um, and a lot of people in the liberty movement already grasp these things, but I think Lou is attempting, and I, and I sure hope this works, I think Lou is attempting to reach out to some of those people who have you know, put a lot of time and effort and a lot of themselves into the Ron Paul campaign, and now they're starting to see that that's not realistic, and they're starting to wonder, you know, what now? What do we do? What 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 can what what direction are we taking now? And and I think this article today at Lou Rockwell uh, does a really really good job at reaching out to those people and providing for them a little more a little more substantial. Mm, some meat to chew on, let's say, rather than the fluff that the, uh, you know, that the um, political campaigns tend to to produce. Anyway, I was really inspired by Lou's article, and I and I thought, man, this is great stuff. I got to talk about this. Um, in in Lou's article, he talks about uh, Rothbard's uh, uh, approach. Um, and that and that Rothbard's approach basically boiled down to four affirmations, and then he lists those affirmations, and then he goes on and talks about other things. And I want to say, you know, I've said this before. Uh, I, I, I give a brief disclaimer. I have learned more from reading uh, Rockbell or uh, <laughs> uh, Rothbard's works than any other single person. Murray Rothbard's writing just really, really speaks to me. And and I've gone, and some of his things I've gone over and over, and I just can't reread them enough. And I go, I've gone over to uh, the Mises Institute's website and downloaded uh, the audio versions of it, you know, with Floyd Lilly uh, uh, reading the audio versions of Murray's books. And I'm out in the garden, I'm working in my garden, and I've just got uh, Floyd Lilly's voice going through my head reading Murray's works over and over because there's so much there and there's so much that you can get the second time you didn't get the first time or you, or you can get it the fourth time because you didn't get it the third time. And so, you know, I've, I really mean it. I've, I've learned uh, a ton from Murray Rothbard's writings. But there's a couple things that Murray was just dead wrong on. And there was a couple things that Murray really put a lot of his effort during his lifetime into that were absolute folly. And um, and sometimes Murray was able to see after a while. He was able to see the folly of his ways. But uh, some things he never really caught on to. And some things, you know, he put a lot of effort into going in the directions that were absolutely not productive. And now, as time has gone by, we can look back and see that some of his effort was actually counterproductive. But when you read, and again, get over to Lou Rockwell, and oh, well, actually go to uh, uh, badquicker.com and click that link, and go, to, and that'll take you right to the Lou Rockwell uh, article that I'm talking about. But in that article, uh, Lou mentions Murray's four affirmations, and I and I read that, and I think, you know, if Murray had only stuck by that. If he had really seriously and with a hard line applied those to his own life, 
he he would not have made the mistakes that he made. And when I'm talking about mistakes that Murray made, uh, let me just be specific. Murray was in on the founding of the Cato Institute. And really and truly, you know, and the Cato Institute has done some good things. Uh, and they and and I've learned some things from the Cato Institute. Uh, you know, some of their work on exposing the the horrors of SWAT teams and the horrors of the no knock raids. I could say a lot of good things about that, but you know, Murray went into the into the the proposition of creating the Cato Institute. He he sort of created this weird union of himself and what were really hardcore Republicans, really, you know, hardcore right-wing people. And Murray made this mistake over and over, trusting the right wing, thinking that the right wing was somehow teachable or adaptable or, or something. And they never were. They always came back and bit him. The right wing, uh, specifically Republicans, but all those who tend to think in that direction, all of those people who have those hardcore Republican right-wing way of thinking, you know, they're very much, and I've said this before, and a lot of other people have said this, so I'm not, this is not groundbreaking or anything, but they're very much like an abusive husband. They, uh, the relationship between libertarians and the right-wing is very much like, uh, like a victim wife and an abusive husband because the right-wing... Uh, the Republicans, those conservatives, those hardcores, they will, when they need, when they need libertarians, when they need us to fill in their voting roles, and when they need us to lend legitimacy to their, to their aggression, then they're all friendly to us, and they're all lovey-dovey, and they're all hugging up against us, and they're all apologizing for their past behavior. And then the moment that we point out something, the moment that we really bring some kind of a moral ground in and say, you know, what about the zero aggression principle? What about, what about actually shrinking government? What about actually doing something to reduce the size of government? What about eliminating a branch of bureaucracy? Then the right wing just whips out its belt and beats us and beats us and beats us and then mocks us and then dares us to go to the left side. They, they've done that right along. They've done that over and over. They did it to Murray Rothbard. You know, Murray supported uh, right-wing candidates in the 60s. Murray supported right-wing candidates in the 50s. Murray supported right-wing candidates in the 70s. And look what they did to him over and over and over. And he had it in his mind with the Cato Institute that he could go in to this bizarre marriage with the Koch family and utilize their money and do something good with it. And what did they do? They just turned it on him and beat him with it. They promised him all kinds of, uh, you know, they, gave, they actually gave him stock options and they gave him stocks in, in the Cato Institute and they, they just lavished upon him all the things that the abusive husband lavishes upon his potential bride. And then once the marriage took place, the beating began. And if you go to the, to the Cato Institute now. You can go there physically in Washington, D.C., to their, to their facility, or you can go to their website, and you search and you look. And it's very doubtful you'll find any indication that Murray Rothbard was one of the founding members. The, the divorce was complete. But they had to beat him first, and he never did get his stock money out of that. All the stocks that they promised him, 
they, he didn't get any of it. You see, because that's the way the state is. That's how people who support the state are. They're, you can't bend them to your will. You can't, no amount of kindness will win them over. No amount of logic will convert them. They are what they are. So, so I've often said that this was Murray's greatest mistake, was his constant falling back on hoping that he could get the right wing to somehow embrace libertarian views. That was always the, the main mistake of Murray Rothbard. Uh, you know, I've said, too, that, that the folly of Murray Rothbard was in involving himself in the Cato Institute. He should have kept himself clean, um, but he, he was naive in that way. And he thought over and over, well, this time will be different. This time will be different. And each time he tried to em embrace these right-wing people, each time he tried to embrace the conservative end of the Republicans, the same result happened. But he kept going back, and he kept going back. So, yeah, so these four principles, or I'm sorry, these four affirmations that Murray laid down that Lou Rockwell talks about in this article, they're really good. And I want to spend a little time today examining these, uh, these four affirmations. I'm going to read them for you right, right now. Now, I changed the wording just slightly because, in all honesty, you know, um, some of Murray's way of speaking was not, uh, you know, for example, Murray, in his writings, Murray talks a lot about, you know, when he's giving economic examples, he, he goes on and on and on about barrels of fish and uh, and teams of horses. Well, maybe if you're writing in 1948, that might be applicable to your audience. But if you're talking to people in 2012 and trying to give economic explanations of things, you're probably not going to get that far if you're talking about barrels of fish and teams of horses. Uh, so, so for that reason, whenever I use the exact same ar uh, arguments as Murray made using barrels of fish and teams of horses, I usually talk about you know, apple farmers and, a, and an apple stand and maybe a taco stand. And I compare apples and tacos because I think apples and tacos are a little bit easier to relate to than teams of horses and barrels of fish. You know what I'm saying? So, so I have played with Murray's wording a little bit here, but I've made every effort to maintain, uh, to maintain exactly what he was trying to say. I, I have, I have uh, tried in every way not to alter his meaning. So here's the four affirmations. One, liberty must be the highest political end. Two, the groundwork for this goal must be a moral passion for justice. Three, liberty must be pursued by the quickest and most efficient and most effective means possible. And four, the means taken must never contradict the goal by violating the zero aggression principle. Now, I'm going to take these one by one and let's just think about them for a minute. The first one was, liberty must be the highest political end. Now, liberty can't be obtained by more tyranny. In other words, you can't beat a slave into freedom. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't, use more chains to lock upon a person and thereby give them liberty. And the state is aggression. The, the state without aggression wouldn't be the state. If you, if you try to explain the state and separate aggression from that, you don't have a state. 
The state itself is aggression. The state is the religious belief that people can use aggression to maintain a monopoly of law in a geographical territory. That's the, that's the actual definition of a state. Without aggression, the state cannot maintain its monopoly of law in a geographical territory. So if liberty must be the highest political end, then the only true goal of liberty must be the elimination of the state. And using the state to eliminate the state, uh, how, how, how can that be? When, when, when the existence of the state relies upon the myth, the belief, the religious, the religious affirmation that this, this monopoly of aggression and this monopoly of law is good, if, if that's the essence of the state, then how can you use the state to eliminate the state? So again, if liberty is the highest political end, then the only true goal of liberty must be to eliminate the state. Now let's think about Murray's goal number uh, Murray's affirmation number two. The groundwork for this goal must be a moral passion for justice. Now this is pretty important, but this is really one of the most confusing aspects of the liberty movement, and it's something that a lot of people in the liberty movement haven't quite caught on to yet. The groundwork for this goal must be a moral passion for justice. The problem is the governments provide this double speak where they talk about justice. They have departments of justice. They have justices. They have they use this word over and over and over. But to, you know, to use the movie line, I don't think this means what you think it means. Justice in the eyes of the government means enforcing that monopoly of law in a geographical territory. Justice to a government is not the same as justice to an individual. If I stomp on your toes, justice is not for the government to swoop in, haul me away somewhere, and then charge you to house me while it punishes me for stomping on your toes. That's not justice. Justice is not where the government comes in as a separate entity and, and hauls me away for doing something that a small committee of people have decided was bad when I've harmed no one. Justice is not being hauled away and put in a cage because I've grown a plant that a committee has decided is bad. That's not justice. Justice is not arresting a murderer and throwing him in a cage for years perhaps years and years, and then, uh, and then eventually the government killing him, but then charging the victims and the victims' families and, and other people who are not associated with the crime, charging them taxes to support that criminal that whole time. How can that be justice? How can it be justice for the government to snatch up somebody, accuse them of murder, hold them in a cage for years and years, then eventually kill them, and all the time charge innocent people for the privilege of supporting this murderer in jail. How can that be justice? When I get back from this break, I'm going to talk some more about justice because I think it's, I think it's foundational to understanding what true liberty is and why the state can never, ever be used to produce liberty. I'll be right back and uh, stick with me. 
Would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon, it won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. I was talking about justice. I was talking about uh, number two of Murray's um, affirmations. And number two says, The groundwork for this goal must be a moral passion for liberty. Now, I'm going to contend that before you can fully embrace the concept of liberty, you must reject any remnant of faith that justice can be produced by the state. The existence of the state precludes the possibility of justice because the foundational myth of the state is based on the idea, the belief, that the state is the source of law. And if you, if you have that in your mind, that the state is the source of law, then, uh, then the fundamental understanding of what liberty is, what justice is, two different liberty and justice, two different concepts, but, but it applies to either. The foundational understanding of what justice is cannot be understood by the person who believes that the state is the source of law. So, so before you can even move ahead in, into the, the greater concept, you have to exercise, like, like, in a, uh, like in a religious point of view, the exercise, like an exorcist, you have to exercise that myth out of your mind that the government, that any government, using the aggression of the state, can ever produce real law. And if the government cannot produce law, the government cannot produce justice. And the state, in any form, I should, I should talk about the state, the difference between the state and the government here. You know, a government is a collection of people who, uh, who wear uniforms or who sit in offices and do the bidding uh, of that government. It, the government is the buildings. The government is all the different, uh, you know, the lobbyists. The government is all those things that function together, the people uh, and, and the, you know, the administrations, the bureaus, all that together is the government. But the state is bigger than that. The state is this myth that the use of the aggression of government is good. So then uh, take the banking, uh, the, the central banking uh, scams that, that are worldwide right now. Central banks are part of the state because they function with the government and they use the aggression of government to, to perpetuate their existence. So without believing that the government is legitimate, if you didn't believe the government was legitimate, then you could accept the idea that central banking is also illegitimate. But if you accept the idea that the government is legitimate, then the government has affirmed that central banking is legitimate. So these two, the government and central banking, are under this canopy of the belief in the state, this myth, this religion of the state. And so you think about large corporations. How is it that a large corporation exists? A large corporation exists and functions in the market because of advantages given to it by the government. Government contracts, government advantages through regulation. Uh, government, you know, when, when the government pushes through some kind of really harsh regulation, if you go back far enough and you dig into it, you'll see 
that very often the companies that are supporting the harsh regulation are the largest, most powerful corporations in that end of the industry. And these regulations almost always harm competition and harm the smaller upcoming companies to the advantage of the bigger ones. So, for instance, a quick example is this latest uh, thing. Well, it's not the latest, but it happened uh, not long ago, the outlawing of incandescent light bulbs. Well, General Electric used to have the monopoly on the on the uh, uh, through way of uh, you know patents. Uh, General Electric used to have a monopoly on light bulbs, and so everybody, other companies could could produce them, but they all had to pay money back to General Electric. But with time, General Electric lost that uh, government issued monopoly, and so then someone had this scheme, this idea. And so these curly light bulbs were invented by who? By GE, by employees of GE. And then, uh, and then it became this great idea in government to make it out to outlaw the old style incandescent bulbs. And we're told that they're inefficient. We're told all these other things. But in reality, if you look and see who was behind the laws that forced through the outlawing of the incandescent bulb, you see that GE, the owner of the of the patent on the curly bulbs, was the, was one of the biggest pushers to get that law through. So now all of a sudden in America, you can't manufacture the incandescent bulbs, but you can manufacture the curly bulbs if you pay GE. You see, GE used the used the aggression of government to eliminate its competition and continue its monopoly in the marketplace. Now, without the aggression of government, GE could not have done that. And that's just one example. Uh, you know, lots of corporations do this. Monsanto does it. The pharmaceutical companies do it. Um, you know, the, the many people in the aerospace and defense industry do this. This is not unusual. This is not even illegal. It's the common use of the aggression of government to support industry. So when you talk about the state, you have to realize that you're also talking about the entire central banking superstructure. You're talking about all these giant corporations that manipulate government to its own to their own advantages. That's all under the canopy of the state. The state is the myth that those things are all legitimate and that the aggression of government can be used to support those things. That's the myth of the state. And the state, the idea that a small group of people getting together and making a decision and calling that law. The belief in that is faith in the state. So where does law come from if it doesn't come from government? Well, all real law, all true law, comes to us from nature, from the fact that we're humans. It doesn't come from a committee of humans. It comes from the fact that we are humans. So then, if you look at the zero aggression principle, the zero aggression principle does not... Uh, exclude, uh, does not preclude, I should say, self-defense. Self-defense is perfectly acceptable in the zero aggression principle. But the zero aggression principle says, I cannot, I do not have the right to to initiate a force upon other people. I do not have the right to aggress upon other people. And no one has the, the right to initiate force against me. No one has the right to aggress against me. And then that zero aggression principle coupled with property rights, I own myself. 
And by owning myself, I own my own labor. I own my own thoughts. I own my own words. I own my own deeds. I am both owner of them and I am responsible for them. And as you embrace these two things together, and you realize that any aggression upon an individual or an individual's property breaks the zero aggression principle. And then you begin to examine that and say, okay, then what is justice? Well, if, if justice, justice has to involve a paying back of damages and a retribution for damages done. So in other words, if someone walks up to me on the street just randomly and they slap me in the face and then hand me a dollar, does that make it okay? You see, retribution has to be more than just getting paid back for damages. Like if I could somehow measure that a slap in the face, some, face somehow cost me a dollar. Or let's put it a different way. Let's say, I'm a, let's say I'm a beautiful supermodel and some crazed person comes up and slashes my face. Now because of that I lose hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts. So justice has to involve two things. First off, it has to involve me being paid back for my damages. And second off, it, it involves something much deeper in the human psyche. Yeah, I can have money, but I'm not going to really feel justice until I feel retribution for what's happened to me. Some might call it revenge, and maybe it is. You know, uh, uh, a, a person who's confused by all the religious... Uh, I'm sorry, but I have to say it. All the religious nonsense that's given to us by all these fancy guys in their fancy robes and fancy headgear that want to tell us what religion is. All those people... They want to tell us that, well, uh, vengeance is not a good thing. Well, you know, that's funny because I think you're wrong. I think vengeance, like every other emotion that a human being can have, is a part of our natural makeup. And vengeance out of control is a bad thing, just like any emotion out of control is a bad thing. Lust out of control is a bad thing. Desire out of control is a bad thing. Any kind of em emotion like that that's out of control can turn bad. But... But when held in check and held in, within reason, vengeance satisfies a part of your inner being that cannot be satisfied any other way. When you are wronged, if you remove vengeance from the formula, you can never be righted in that. So then the person who comes up and slaps me in the face and offers me a dollar, in a sense, I'm insulted by that because the only way that I'm going to feel right is if I can crack him across his face. Now that's not bad. That's not evil. That's not sinful. That's natural. Think about that. Could, could a desire that basic to our human function be evil? Sure, as I said, anything that, gets, that is out of balance, that, that goes too far, can, can be bad. But the, but the initial desire for revenge as long as it's kept in check, is not bad. This is why, if you, you know, if you think about the old, uh, the biblical, one, one of the things that people attack the Bible about all the time is the, the idea that an eye for an eye and a tooth and a to for a tooth is somehow barbaric. Well, that was a limitation. First off, it's older than the Bible. That comes from the, from the, uh, the Hammurabi's Code. That's much older than the Bible. But above and beyond that, that's a limitation on vengeance. That's saying if somebody pokes your eye out, you can't go beyond poking their eye out. If someone breaks off your tooth, you can't kill them and all their children because of it. The most you can take vengeance to is the loss of their tooth. 
So this is, sets a civil limit on what vengeance can be. Now, I think when you, uh, and I'll do an article on this, uh, in the, uh, I almost have it finished. I've been working on it on and off for a long time. But anytime you write down in words, in text, and you begin to write down what a law is, you begin to lose the value of that law. And I'll go into that later. So, so when you write down an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and you, then you try to apply that, uh, what you're doing is you're a, a human trying to make law. And you fall back into the same category as you're attempting to become the state. You're attempting to make yourself the lawgiver. And what is it when a human makes himself the lawgiver? The human is then taking the place of that which made man. A human, the, the law comes to us from nature. Or as the, you know, as uh, some documents have put it, nature's God. Whatever it was that created us, whether that be eons of time, or whether that be a conscious decision by, by an individual. Whatever created us, created natural law with us. And that natural law doesn't change with time. And when we set ourselves up and we say that this one small commit, committee of men, or this one writer of law, or this one person that we, uh, that we put up as some kind of a great man, when it, whenever, whenever we decide as humans that humans can make law, then we take man and we put man in the place of God. We kick God off the throne and we put ourselves on that throne. Or we put another man on that throne. And that is the essence of blasphemy. If you're, if you're a theist, if you have any foundational ideas that there exists a God, how can that be anything other than blasphemy? And if you're not a theist, if you're an atheist, and you realize that mankind has gotten to where he is through eons of time, then again, that which created us, our nature, has created for us certain laws. And if we violate those laws, then we're violating nature. We're violating our own nature. And when a species decides for itself that it's going to violate that which has made it what it is, then that species is driving itself towards extinction. And if you think about the state... Ultimately, the end of the state is the complete absorption of all of humanity into this slavery that is, in the long run, destructive to mankind. So then this, the law comes to us from our nature, not from a committee of humans, not from those who would lord down upon us with their will and their whims, enforced by their batons, their guns, and their cages. That's not what law is. Law is that which was born into you. Law is that which you know inside yourself to be right. Keep in mind, now, when I was talking about, you know, when a species acts against its own natural laws, that species guarantees its own extinction. And keep in mind that there have been branches of humanity that have failed in the past. We know this. There's, we have all the archaeological evidence. We know that there are branches of humanity that have failed. And other branches of humanity can fail in the future. The advantages of our ancestors allowed them to survive the ravages of time, while less advantaged humans did not survive. And the state, you have to realize, is a is a temporary condition of humanity. And for the state, for the myth of the state to continue, governments have to grow, and humans must grow more and more dependent on their governments. Yet. All the while, governments everywhere and at all times depend on the destruction of wealth 
the destroying of the wealth of the remaining productive people in society is the very thing that drives government. Government depends on the destruction of wealth. Now this is a self-contradictory nature of the state, and it assures the death of the state when the state gets large enough and powerful enough. And so expecting the state to produce justice, we have to first assume that the state can produce law. And since the state, since it's impossible for the state to produce law, and since the only way the state can produce justice is by bearing itself down upon innocent people, the state cannot produce justice. Uh, let me let me go through a, a, this, a different scenario, but the same idea one more time, just to, just to kind of beat this horse a little bit more. If a man robs me, a man breaks into my house and robs me, and I do everything I'm supposed to do that the government tells me I'm supposed to do, and I call the police, and the police come out, and they investigate, and let's say that there's evidence that they can collect that means uh, there's no possible way that this crime could have been committed by any anyone other than my neighbor Joe. So they go to Joe's house. They get a warrant. They do all things proper according to the law, the so-called law. They get a warrant. They go to Joe's house. Within Joe's house is the property he stole from me. There's no, there's no doubt about it. It's got my markings on it. It's, you know, all the evidence is there. Let's even say Joe admits that he is indeed the thief that stole from me. And so he's arrested. And he's taken in and he's given a public defender. And the public defender tries to get the best deal possible uh, so that he doesn't do any more jail time than he has to. And uh, so they fight the thing through in court. Maybe he takes a plea. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe it goes to trial. It doesn't matter. At some point in time, Joe goes to jail. And Joe spends a couple years in jail over this. And then Joe gets out. Now we say to ourselves, see, justice was served. No, you were fooled. There was no justice served there. There was no possible way justice could take place in that transaction. No justice was done. Because the crime was investigated with stolen money. All of the money that it took to investigate the crime for the police to come out and to do all the footwork that the police did, all of that was paid for by money that was extorted from people who have no involvement in this relationship between Joe and me. There are people in Montana, there are people in Alaska, there are people in Hawaii who don't know me, have never met me, and will never know anything about me. And essentially a gun was put to their head, and they were forced to pay for this government, this justice system that brings these police to my house and has them investigate what's happening at my house, this robbery. Well, there's no logical way that you can call that justice. And then so Joe is arrested and Joe's hauled off and Joe goes through an elaborate trial and even if he even if he pleases, uh, uh, gets a plea bargain and it cuts down on the size of his trial, it doesn't matter. All the people involved are being paid through stolen money that was ex that was taken at the point of a gun from people who have no business involved and no involvement whatsoever in Joe's uh, theft, uh, in his robbery, or in me as as the victim of the robbery. People are paying for this who have absolutely nothing to do with it. And then Joe is incarcerated and put away, and, and he's fed, and he's clothed, and he's taken care of with medical treatment of any kind that he might need. And all that time, who's paying for that? Not only all those innocent people that are not involved that I've already been talking about, but me, the victim of Joe, 
I am having to pay to incarcerate, to incarcerate him. How can that be justice? And then Joe's turned loose. And what happens when Joe gets turned loose? He's free to commit more crime. Or he's free to come back and, and take out retributions against me for having prosecuted him on this topic. Now I'm going to break again when I get back. I'm going to elaborate in... Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm going to go to, the, to uh, number three on our list. I'll be right back. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to BadQuaker.com and click on the button for HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting BadQuaker.com. Okay, thanks for sticking with me. So number two on, our, on Murray's list there was, The groundwork for this goal must be a moral passion for justice. But as I've tried to attempt in the last few minutes to show... The state can never, ever, ever, ever produce justice. No government under any circumstances can ever produce justice because the very existence of governments uh, means justice is impossible. The existence of the belief in the state is the opposite of justice. So then the third, uh, the third of Murray's affirmations is liberty must be pursued by the quickest and the most efficient and effective means possible. Keep this in mind. When the marketplace of humanity demands liberty, no government can stand against it. Governments can't hold back a market demand. Governments might interfere with a market. Governments might um, distort a market. But when there's a demand for something, the governments cannot hold them back. But the market needs more than a demand. In addition to having a demand, it must have a supply. Every market must have a supply and a demand. No one can force uh, liberty on humanity. You can't vote liberty in. You can't push liberty upon someone. A functional market has to require a supply and a demand. You have to have both. Now think about the supply of liberty. The supply of liberty is you being yourself, seeking truth, and demanding individual freedom. You creating for yourself the most comfortable life you can produce while condemning aggression and the loss of justice. You pointing your finger at aggression while keeping your own hands clean of the blood of the state. Think about this demand now. The demand for liberty can only be achieved by the inevitable increase of tyranny. Only the advances of the power of, of government can drive the desire for liberty. You think, I talk all the time about air. You think about air. You walk around in your life every day and you don't think about air. It doesn't enter your mind. You go through all of the things you go through in your day and you never think about air. But the moment that you don't have air, the moment strangulation begins, or the, most, the moment suffocation begins, then you realize how important air is. And your demand to have air is equal to, uh, to the amount of um, strangulation that you experience. And the amount that you'll fight for more air is exactly equal to the amount that air is taken away from you. How panicked you become to get air is equal to the amount 
that the air is being denied you. And liberty is like that. We don't fully come to a point of understanding how important liberty is and really desiring liberty unless liberty is being taken from us. So the only, um, the only thing that can really drive a demand for liberty is the increase, the inevitable increase of tyranny. Therefore, the quickest and most effective and most efficient means at producing a demand for liberty is to disassociate yourself from the political means and embrace the economic means. Remember, Franz Oppenheimer talked about two ways, uh, two things in society that were counter to each other. One was the economic means and the other is the political means. And everything boils down to these two. It's either the political means, which means that you're making your living off of stolen money, you're making your living, uh, you're, you're, whatever you're accomplishing, not only your living, but whatever it is that you're accomplishing, you're using through the means of aggression. And the other way is the economic means. In other words, you're working, you're producing something, and you're voluntarily exchanging the fruit of your labor for the fruit of someone else's labor. And that's the marketplace, and that's voluntary exchange, and that's uh, the economic means. So there's really only these two, the, the economic means and the political means. So anytime that you disassociate yourself with the political means and embrace the economic means, then you yourself are helping to create the demand for liberty because the government is going to counter that with more oppression. There's an old saying uh, that comes to us from, uh, or at least we're told it comes to us from Shakespeare. There's some controversy about that. But the saying is, uh, and it's in, it's in advice, a father's advice to his son as he gets ready to go off on travel. And he says, to thine own self be true. Now, how can you be true to yourself if you serve the state? Every minute you exhaust in the service of the state is a wasted minute that you could have used to serve yourself in the cause of liberty. A long time ago, I came to this conclusion. If, if I work for, uh, let's say I work for the government, or let's say I work for Corporation X, or I work for, you know, uh, Bill down the street, or whatever, if I work for them, and they're willing to pay me $10 an hour, then they must be making money off of me. They must be, my labor must be producing more than $10 an hour worth of value for them. Otherwise, logically speaking, they wouldn't continue to pay me $10 an hour. Why would they pay me $10 an hour if I'm not producing $10 an hour or more worth of goods for them? So then, if I'm producing, let's just say I, I'm working for Joe's, uh, Bill's corporation, Bill's company, let's just say. I'm working for Bill's company, and he's paying me $10 an hour. Well, in order, again, logically for that to take place, he has to make more than $10 of value from me. So let's say for a sake of, of conversation, I'm actually producing $11 worth of value for, for Bill. Well, then why am I giving him a dollar of my value? Why am I not working for myself some way, trying to improve myself and making that extra dollar of value for myself? Now, I'm not saying nobody should work for anybody else, but what I'm saying is your labor, your efforts, the time you put in and work is worth more than what you get back from it. And therefore, you need to look at what you're doing and ask yourself, am I serving the state? If I'm serving the state, then yeah, I, maybe you're getting a salary back, and maybe that's good, and maybe you're supporting your family with it. But at the same time, you're adding value to the state. And wouldn't it be better 
if you were serving yourself or even serving uh, e- even serving yourself in the sense that you're working for someone who is not the state so that that extra value of your labor goes into something that doesn't support the state. All right, now I need to get going because I'm getting low on time here. Number four is the means taken must never contradict the goal by violating the zero aggression principle. Now, Murray's actual words on this were, whether by advocating gradualism, by employing or advocating any aggression, by advocating planned, a planned program, by failing to seize any opportunities to reduce the state, or by ever increasing the state's power in an area. Remember, Ron Paul, and, and to start off with, let's consider uh, um, advocating gradualism. Remember, Ron Paul himself stated very clearly that although liberty can be lost incrementally, liberty cannot be achieved incrementally. Gradualism never works. Murray said this, Ron Paul has, says it, has said it. Ignore the fact that some of their own actions contradict that. Both Murray and Ron Paul understood this as a foundational truth that liberty can never be achieved gradually. It can never be achieved incrementally. It can be lost incrementally, but it can't be achieved incrementally. By employing or advocating any aggression, Murray says, we can't use that. Using the power of the state, using the aggression of government for the purpose of of liberty is illogical, immoral, and impractical. You can't vote liberty into being. You can't beat a slave free. You can't use evil to accomplish good. It can't be done. By advocating planned programs, collectivism cannot produce individual liberty. This is what uh, Menno and I were talking about the other day. Collectivism cannot produce individual liberty. And there is only individual liberty. There's no such thing as communal liberty. So collectivism in any form has to be rejected, and that includes planned programs to produce liberty. It's, it's, uh, it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite. And he says, by failing to seize any opportunity to reduce state power or by ever increasing, or by ever increasing state power in any area. Well, this is like uh, any Lord of the Rings fan should know that you can't use the ring of power for good. You cannot use aggression to create peace. You can't beat someone until they're peaceable. Well, yeah, you can in a way. If you beat someone long enough, they become really peaceable. peaceable. They become dead. And in that sense, you know, if you think about it, can the state produce peace among humanity? Well, it kind of in a bizarre way it can. Because like I was talking about before, if the state's taken to its ultimate uh, to its ultimate destiny. If you think through the logic of, of accepting the concept of the state as good, and you push that out into time, and you grow the state unlimited w- in unlimited ways to accomplish this goal, if you assume that the, co- that the idea of the state is good, and in your mind you let that thing grow out to its ultimate end, then the ultimate end of the state is the death of humanity. So... In a very bizarre sense, yeah, you can produce peace through the state, but it's at the loss of humanity. So we have to come to a point of where you have to realize that the state can only produce, in the long run, theft and death and destruction. 
And you have to reject every aspect and every use of state and reject the religion of believing that the state is legitimate and reject the religion of believing that the state can somehow produce law and justice. And you have to look back to natural law and to the zero aggression principle and to property rights. And then you begin to understand these things. So that's Murray Rothbard's four affirmations of, of how we have to look at liberty and how we have to look at achieving liberty. Um, it, can only be, it can only be achieved on an individual level. It can't be achieved collectively. And it's through individuals striving for their own happiness and individuals striving for, uh, to, to maintain themselves in the zero aggression principle. This is the only logical path to liberty for all of us. As, as, as one individual does that which is best for himself, as long as he is adhering to the zero aggression principle and understanding property rights, as an individual does that which is best for himself, by nature he will do that which is best for his community and best for liberty as a whole. But it's when each individual accepts the aggression of government and accepts the myth of the state... As we do that, it increases the power of the state. Each time we involve ourselves in government, each time we lend our energy to and our effort and our lives and our, and our finances, every time we lend anything of ours into the aggression of government, then we're moving in the opposite direction of liberty. Anytime we try to central plan some type of activity that's going to bring about liberty, it's the opposite of liberty. Now, as I said yesterday in, in the podcast, that doesn't mean we shouldn't get together and have fun and talk to each other and, and refine one another. You know, um, a great saying I love is that steel sharpens steel. And that's what we all have to constantly be doing. You know, I have to rub up against uh, other people in the liberty movement to sharpen them, and they have to rub up against me to sharpen me. This is how the sharpening process takes place. Uh, iron sharpens iron. We have to... We have to allow that process. We have to allow others to sharpen us in order for that to take place. And as, this, as these things happen, we hone the... I, I said one time that, uh, that, the, that the blade of liberty needs to be honed. We have to hone the blade of liberty. But it's not to... You know, it's not for aggressive purposes. It's so that we can cut away that which is among us that supports the state so that each of us as individuals um, can do our part towards building the society around each of us individually. That's, that's the only thing we really have an influence over. Ourselves, our families, the people that we come into direct contact with, to in a peaceful way bring liberty. And that's not by using the aggression of government to accomplish those means. If you have somebody, someone that you know who's a Ron Paul supporter, who's really enthusiastic about the Ron Paul movement and everything that has happened with Ron Paul in the last four, six years, something, you know, however long they've been involved in it. Get them over there to that article at Lou Rockwell. Click on the link from badquaker.com and follow that to the article at Lou Rockwell and read Lou's article today. Get, get, the whole, get a hold of that and get that into the hands of people who you know are Ron Paul supporters. Because I really think what Lou is saying in this article is important. 
And I really think it's, uh, it's critical for all of us in the liberty movement to reach out to these Ron Paul people who are, who are maybe some of them are feeling disillusioned. Maybe some of them are feeling backed into a corner where they think they have to go back and get involved in the political uh, movement again, where I think some of them are going to feel like they need to go and you know, run for some local office or try to get involved in politics on some kind of level. We need to really make an effort to reach out to these people and show them that they've got to let go of this uh, it's almost like an addiction. The state gets into your mind, and it's almost like a like an addiction. But it's it's really not. It's a religion. It's a fanatical religion that wants to force itself upon everybody else, and that that has to be exposed for what it is. We have to have the pointing finger constantly pointing at it and saying that is aggression. And we also have to be true to ourselves and keep our own hands clean of that blood. Folks, for more on liberty, property rights, and the zero aggression principle, go to badquaker.com. Thank you very much for listening today.